Financial services firms are choosing between build and buy for Gen AI in the tax function. Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. I think the biggest question for our clients is a build versus buy conversation. Is As we talked about, there's going to be a need to upskill. That costs money. There's a need for tax talent that's hard to find in the marketplace. And technology budgets are strained everywhere. And so our clients have to decide, are they going to go it alone to build tax models? Or are they going to lean on a third-party provider that has scale and investment to leverage that investment going forward? Learn more at EY.com. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Hello and welcome to another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, do you remember that time I bought a barrel of oil? <laughs> that was a classic, classic moment in a... Whoa. Yeah, that was, that was classic. You can say it. In I, all of financial journalism. In all of financial journalism where you actually... It wasn't a barrel, though. No, let's, it let's wasn't. Let's be honest here. Let's be honest. It wasn't. I, uh, I tried to buy an actual barrel. It was like um, a gallon, right? It was a, basically a jar of yeah. um, crude oil. I'm really happy I didn't buy an entire barrel in the end because part of the experience of doing this was I realized how difficult it is to actually move and store oil. Oil is a dangerous thing. Yeah. You had it on the desk next to us and then you That's left, right. right? Like you left for Hong Kong or you left yeah. for Abu Dhabi and left the oil and like a bunch evaporated. I'm not sure I should tell this story, but I couldn't figure out how to dispose of my jar of crude oil. So I just procrastinated and left it on the desk and it slowly evaporated and poisoned my colleagues. We all and inhaled now... oil fumes for months and months and yeah. months on end. Sorry about that, Joe. Sorry, I survived. All right. Well, I bring it up. Because I'm very, very curious about the business of storing and transporting oil right now. And part of the reason is because, as we've been discussing on this podcast, we had a really great episode with our colleague Javier Blas, for instance. U.S. oil production is at a record. I think yes. it's like more than 13 million barrels per day now. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. Obviously, the U.S. just production booming like crazy. And, you know, you mentioned that episode with Javier. When we talk about oil most of the time. Right. We're talking sort of like macro, like who are mm -hmm. the big producers? How much global demand is there? What is the trajectory? What's happening in shale? What is happening in Saudi, et cetera? But as we like to do from time to time, like these aren't just numbers on a screen. Right. Oil is definitely not just a number on a screen. And if you want to go long oil, if you want to, if you're bullish on oil, like you might be able to do that with a few clicks, but someone somewhere. You don't want to take physical delivery. <laughs> you probably don't want to, but someone somewhere has to have the physical, I don't know if it's counterpart or the physical exposure to meet your financial obligations. So if you trade oil futures, someone there, like I assume, takes the other side on some level by having exposure to the physical product, which means worrying about disposal, delivery, storage tankers, and so forth. And so like the sort of 
the side of the business that's not usually talked about, we should talk about. Absolutely. And just going back to that episode with Javier, I remember one of the themes from that was how much oil production patterns have changed in the past few years. And so I'm very curious if the storage and transportation patterns are also changing. Mm. So I'm pleased to say we really do have the perfect guests to dive into the business of storing and moving oil. We're going to be speaking with Stephen Barsamian. He is COO at The Tank Tiger and also the co-host of The Tank Talk podcast, so a fellow podcaster. Steve, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, maybe just to begin with, talk to us about what The Tank Tiger actually does. I was looking at the website you describe yourself as a clearinghouse for terminal storage. And if you go to the website, Joe, I don't know if you've done this yet. I have. But you can look at uh, basically kind of want ads for storage. It's like looking for, you know, specialty chemical storage, <laughs> this amount, or um, I have available this amount of storage for a particular product. Yeah, I mean, Tracy, you kind of nailed it there. That's kind of what we do. Um, I like to say we're Airbnb for tanks. I was um, going to say Tinder for tanks, <laughs> oh. but Airbnb probably works too. Uh, my dad has used Match.com before. So, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's kind of high level what we do. Essentially, we have customers that are terminals that store, you know, petroleum products, chemicals, bioproducts, and they're all pretty much liquids and they go into a, you know, a giant tank. I'm sure people have seen The Sopranos, the yeah. intro to The Sopranos, those ginormous tanks in the intro that typically holds, you know, gasoline or diesel. And essentially you can lease them out like an apartment and people pay for a term on that tank like you would pay for a term on an apartment. And essentially oil traders, oil majors, they usually are the customers that lease those tanks. And there's terminal storage companies that are public companies that kind of lease them out third party. So that's kind of how it works. And essentially, we kind of get in the middle of that and we try to facilitate the transactions of people that need storage and the people that have storage. And like you said, it's kind of like one ads, you know, trying to find the perfect match. And really, that's what we've done for the past nine years. And so far, we're we're still in business and still paying the bills. So <laughs> wanted storage unit with sensitivity and I don't know, affinity for poetry. <laughs> okay. A slightly random. How much of the business, if you look overall, is sort of like big sort of long term relationships between some oil producer and some storage company? And then how much maybe of the Tank Tiger's business or anyone else's business is perhaps like sort of like, I don't know, maybe the term is odd lots of oil storage where some storage company has a little bit of extra space beyond what their contract is. I mean, I assume there are like long-term contracts, but why don't you like talk about the breakdown there of how these deals usually come together? You know, so my dad who started the company, he worked at Hess for over 30 years and he kind of started the third-party leasing of terminal storage mm. at Hess. Um, those terminals are now not obviously owned by Hess anymore. And he kind of saw this need in the market to create this company. And, you know, when he was doing deals at Hess, it was, you know, largely long-term deals or spot deals and essentially, you know, trying to find the best fit for their excess capacity and assets. So I would say, you know, typically today, you know, with us being in the market, we've kind of added some liquidity and transparency. A lot of the big players, you know, there's big and small terminals and a lot of them have, you know, like you said, long-term customers that have been there for years and years. Um, and then there's swings in the market where there's Contango, which I hope your folks know what that is. It's uh, basically in the futures market when the prices 
more than the today's price. So mm-hmm. essentially, you can put oil away and make money by storing it. And then backwardation is the opposite. So that's de-incentivizes storage. So that kind of fluctuates and, you know, people leave and enter markets all the time. Companies change all the time. So leases run off. So that kind of leaves that excess and incremental storage capacity that's, you know, up for a spot or a long-term lease. I was just going to ask one quick question. This comes up in a lot of the episodes we do on trucking where we look at the rates and they say, okay, there's a spot rate and a contract rate for trucking. Is there basically an equivalent where you could sort of plot over time what sort of contracted rates there are for long-term relationships and then like a spot rate that fluctuates both up and down relative to the contract? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's you kind of hit the nail on the head there. You know, you know, long-term rates, they're kind of steady at a certain threshold and um, it has to make sense for both sides. And there's spot rates and that kind of moves kind of with the markets. And that's, yeah, exactly it. All right. So I know some oil majors obviously have their own storage, but a lot of people are clearly leasing it from third parties. Why is that? Like, why not just build out your own capacity? Some do, but it's kind of like, you know, the old uh, economics uh, model uh, that I remember from an episode of The Office. (laughs) Usually, you know, you, you don't want the liability and you have to essentially use that tank all the time if you're going to be building it. That's really what leasing comes in is you don't have that general liability of operating a terminal. So you just can come in and go as you please when you need it and when you don't need it. Most oil majors do own their own storage for their own operational use. I would say a lot of you know oil majors now these days are trading, physical trading, and they will take advantage of arbitrage opportunities by leasing storage in certain markets, whether that's for blending or moving product from A to B or, you know, taking advantage of Contango, as I mentioned. So they kind of do both. And there's oil trading companies that exist that are just, you know, these companies that trade commodities from all different parts of the globe. And basically they operate with long-term and short-term leases to take advantage of the same trading opportunities, as I kind of just mentioned. You mentioned those tanks in the opening scenes of The Sopranos. My assumption would be that in suburban New Jersey um, or suburban New York or wherever they are, there's probably not a lot of appetite to build more, that there are neighbors who probably do not want those big fields or those big terminals or the, the big uh, you know storage facilities to continue to expand. I imagine people don't want to live next to them. Whereas on the production side, it's I imagine, you know, in sort of depopulated parts of like North Dakota or Texas or wherever there's explosion, there's probably not much of a, less of a constraint. So is there a mismatch in the country's ability to produce oil, which seems like it can ramp up like crazy, versus the country's ability to store oil, which I imagine, especially in strategic locations near ports, near where people live, uh, is going to be somewhat constrained? For sure, Joe. I mean, we live, or I live, all of us live kind of in the New York area. And uh, New York Harbor is uh, the NYMEX hub for gasoline and diesel. Mm -hmm. And we have, I don't know if people have noticed, but there's a giant bunch of tanks farms in the area. And really, that kind of has actually constrained over the years. A lot of terminals have been sold and turned into warehouses. Hmm. And like you mentioned, NIMBY, you know, nobody wants to see, you know, an oil tank pop up in their backyard. Yeah. So a lot of that is actually kind of constraining here in this geography. Whereas you mentioned other parts of the U.S. and the globe, they're probably more willing and there's nothing around them to build more tanks. Building tanks, I mean, it, it kind of fluctuates with the market, as I said before. You know, we, we started the podcast with production growth. That 
was a big boom in midstream in the early parts of the 2010s with the fracking and kind of midstream followed along with that to uh, uh, facilitate the movement of that production. And that was kind of the big midstream boom there. And then, you know, recently with the uh, opening of the uh, Mexican border, there was a big boom for midstream needs to move product to Mexico, whether it was by rail. So, Sorry, the tanks are midstream. Midstream tanks. Okay, sorry, yeah. sorry. No, sorry. no, I'm just making sure. But that <laughs> tanks are considered midstream. Midstream, okay, yes. Okay, yeah. Thanks. Midstream terminals, yes. It's kind of all midstream includes, you know, pipelines, Got tanks, it. et cetera. So yeah, there's downstream, midstream, and upstream. Yeah. So you had, you know, the big boom for Mexico. There was a lot of tanks built for that movement of product to Mexico that all these uh, companies were able to do business in Mexico. So that provided the opportunity to expand and build more tanks for that. And then Recently, we've seen on the chemical side and on the um, agricultural side, which kind of leads into renewable fuels, we've seen a, quite a large movement to build more tanks for housing renewable fuels. And, um, you know, that's not a coincidence. There's been, you know, a global push to get into renewables. When I say renewable fuels, that's, you know, biodiesel, that's ethanol, that's renewable diesel, this product called SAF that's uh, meant for airlines. Um, it's a replacement fuel for jet fuel. And then, you know, there's the feedstocks that are used to produce these products. And those are typically like palm oils, veg oils, used cooking oil. All this product is need to be imported and then moved to the production facility. So that's kind of facilitated this kind of new boom in midstream and terminal infrastructure of building more tanks um, for that. And that's Largely, I mean, we've seen it largely across the U.S., and it's predominantly happened in the Gulf Coast, too, hmm. um, where I would say the Gulf Coast is one of the largest holders of tanks inventory in probably the U.S., and just sheer total capacity. It's definitely the most active and the largest. generative AI impact the way financial services firms work? Here are some thoughts from EY and real-time business. At an enterprise level, how will it impact the way we work? Just like how internet changed all our lives, this technology has the potential to have a step change in how we fundamentally operate. But let me give you a few examples of what some of the use cases our clients are exploring. We are seeing our clients explore a few knowledge management use cases, for example, in, in case of wealth and asset management, providing their financial advisors with right information so that they can serve their clients better. Similarly, a claims agent in insurance or a contact center representative in case of banking and capital markets. The, the theme that we are seeing is where the machine comes in and provides contextual insights to enable the humans make better decisions, better actions, in a faster manner. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. There used to be headlines about the U.S. running out of oil storage. I think during the depths of the pandemic in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, we started to see those crop up. But even before then, I think during the shale boom, there was storage concerns and like the pipelines were getting clogged up and things like that. Do those concerns still exist today? If U.S. oil production is at more than 13 million barrels per day, we've seen this massive surge. Is the infrastructure to handle the movement and storage of that where it needs to be? Yeah, actually, uh, we kind of overbuilt our pipeline capacity a little bit in Hmm. anticipation of all this production and needing it to pretty much any incremental barrel we produce is exported. Because, you know, we've kind of satiated our need with the refining capacity here in the U.S. for light crudes. So, yeah, we kind of overbuilt it a little bit. And the production is trying to keep up to get to that point where levels are paying for (laughs) that uh, infrastructure that was built. Yeah, kind of the things you mentioned, you know, for your prior point with the uh, it was around like 2015 when oil kind of cratered and, you know, oil typically does boom and bust cycles, as everybody says. And that was a bust cycle in 2015 um, with all that production. And yeah, pretty much everybody that had a tank was filled um, during that time period. And then we have, you know, the pandemic, which was more on the demand side where there was no demand for oil. So people had to park it every nook and cranny. I mean, that might have been the craziest two months of my life during that. What did you see? Did you see uh, creative storage solutions? Yeah. Talk about that time. Yeah. No, it it really was pretty wild. I'm not going to lie. It was unprecedented for so many reasons for so many people. And yeah, we did see so many unusual things, which probably won't be replicated. We had people parking frack tanks, which are these small, like portable tanks and filling them with oil next to, you know, Cushing which is, you know, the NYMEX hub for WTI. And for futures contract, that's the easiest place to, to trade oil. So, yeah, we were seeing that kind of weird level of detail of, you know, filling up and moving frack tanks to Cushing, you know, people filling up pipelines and not even moving the oil. It was a very, very strange time. And, you know, typically it's more of a, a flatter market than that. And we were seeing uh, another weird thing, you know, people booking vessels and just parking oil on oh, yeah. large vessels and parking them at sea or near ports. I'm trying to think, oh, oil on rail cars. That was another thing. People were parking on rail cars and parking them in rail yards. So yeah, that was an interesting time. Not going to lie. I was doing a lot of work in a very short period of time. And also being in a lockdown was making it weirder. But what is the economic sweet spot for owners of midstream assets? Because obviously, you know, you know, we could talk about oil in terms of volume, or we could talk about oil in terms of price. And sometimes they move in the same direction, sometimes not. Often they move, I guess, intuitively often they move in uh, opposite directions. What is the sort of like the dream business environment if you're in the midstream space? <laughs> Probably the dream is high oil prices and high contango. Um, <laughs> that's that's pretty much, you know, the dream. So high oil prices, but even higher in the future. Yeah, exactly. Got it, got um, I would say that's probably the dream scenario. Typically, that doesn't happen. But yeah, that would be the dream scenario. I mean, then you have, you know, producers still producing, moving the oil, which, you know, they're paying tariffs for the pipeline. And then, you know, they're paying it for the export of moving it from the 
pipeline to the tanks, to the dock, and onto a ship. So that that's making money for the terminal all the way through. And then they're making money on the storage costs, which you know people are just going to park oil in the storage and yeah. pay for it. So I would say that's a good dream scenario. <laughs> What makes for a good storage facility? And obviously, I get that the requirements are going to depend on the exact product. But in general, what are the things people are looking for when they're looking for storage capacity? Is it just price or is it maybe safety or convenience, things like that? So when we started the Tank Tiger, storage prices was very, very opaque. And uh, we tried to bring a little bit of light and transparency like I said, we've been doing this for eight years now, so people kind of trust us, I think. So we've been able to kind of shed some light on storage pricing. And it was a black box day. You know, somebody could have been paying like $2 more than the other person in that same terminal or, you know, vice versa. So we've been able to actually create kind of more transparency and liquidity in what we do. But to answer your question, yeah, I would say it's a combination of all. (laughs) So Typically, in a you know a flatter or more backwardated market or a small contango market, the more what I call well-connected facilities or desirable locations are going to be you know the first to you know get leased out. And typically, those are you know terminals in Houston, those are terminals in near Carver, like I mentioned in Cushing, and along the river in New Orleans. Um, you know these are pretty much major trading hubs and logistical hubs, and for at least oil terminals, um, the better the connected, which means, you know, the best pipeline connected facilities tend to do better than the other, the ones that are not as well connected pipeline. And that kind of means is like they're bringing in oil from multiple locations. So it gives a person optionality and they're bringing it to their outbound connectivities to are vast and broad. So that kind of lends itself to be a, a favorable facility. And then, you know, obviously price matters a lot as well. And then for logistically, it's, you know, location. So customers that lease storage want to be around other people that lease storage. So they're able to move barrels from point A to B. And, you know, that provides some liquidity and trading activity. So they don't want to be stuck in the middle of nowhere and nowhere to sell their barrels. And that kind of hurts a lot if they can't sell and the market's bad. So that's kind of what I would say lends to a favorable facility and crude and products. What clean products is like gasoline and diesel jet. And crude oil, you know, obviously it's crude oil. So they're kind of segregated in different terminals. Typically, they're different facilities handle both. So mm. there's differentiators between those two. I have a really basic question since you mentioned the pipelines, but how does the oil um, or the product get from the pipelines into the actual mm. storage facilities? Like, what is the mechanism? Are we talking from a crude oil or clean products standpoint? I guess we could do both. I'd be curious to hear the sort of like life cycle of both those things from like stuff comes out of the ground and then gets moved or stuff comes out of the ground and gets refined and then put into storage because I don't really understand the The physical process. Yeah, the sequencing of it. And, And do the pipelines like plug in directly into storage tanks? I can't imagine that's the case, but... Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, of course. I'll start with crude because that's where it all starts. So typically, the you know, they drill it out of the ground and the way it's moved is into kind of like an aggregation site. Either they move it via a truck or a pipeline that's connected kind of close to the, the well. And that's moved into like an aggregation terminal. And from that aggregation terminal, a terminal that has tanks. So it's literally taken if it's a truck that's driving it to the terminal. <laughs> 
they'll stick a hose into the truck. It'll pump it into a tank. And then at that tank, there's multiple tanks in that little small terminal that'll pump into uh, a bigger terminal. And that bigger facility will then inject it into a long haul pipeline. Some of the long haul pipelines from uh, the Permian go to Houston or Corpus Christi for crude Corpus for their refining complex and to export out of there. And then Houston, you know, for their refining complex and to export out of there. So when it goes to the long haul pipeline, typically the midstream company that owns the long haul pipeline also owns the terminal at point A and point B. So when it's coming in and when it's going out. And then from that pipeline, it'll go into various tanks in that tank field, depending on manifolds and connections in that terminal. And um, that's kind of how it moves. And then, you know, in that terminal, it can there's multiple pipes that are connecting each individual tank. So it can move from one point to another and one tank field to another. Certain terminals have interconnected tanks and it's just like kind of a web inside the terminal how the oils move to each location and then from that tank it's either transported onto a dock so the dock is located at the terminal it's piped into the dock and a ship comes up and the ship is loaded and it goes off to some foreign port or it's moved into another pipeline that is connected generally to a refinery Mm -hmm. Um, and then the refinery has their own tanks at their own plant and that they'll take from that tank into a distillation tower and start producing uh, clean products and then that kind of leads me to the clean products so once a refinery produces clean products typically we'll start from houston because that's where a lot of refining capacity is so though a lot of these refineries have connections into some of these major terminal hubs in Houston um, where a lot of uh, gasoline blending and diesel uh, activity happen and they're pumped into these terminals via pipeline and it can go trade hands from one person to another. And then it can be exported, like I mentioned before, pumped onto a dock sent to like South America or wherever, or it can be shipped up Colonial Pipeline, which is you know the largest distribution pipeline in the U.S., And that pipeline has injections at the terminal site in Houston. And then there's various stops along the way as it goes up to New York Harbor. And then once it's at its destination, let's say at a terminal here in Linden or Bayonne or wherever in New Jersey, it hits the tank. And then typically it's consumed by a customer. So you'll have a truck that comes up to the terminal. It'll load the product at the truck rack and then it'll drive off to a gas station. So Hmm. that's kind of how it works. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, that was a really good overview. And I have a very, first, I have a very quick, simple question. The basic pricing, I mean, are we basically talking about a sort of barrel per day type of pricing or how does- uh, Storage pricing? Yeah, storage pricing. Yeah, so it's essentially, like you said, do- it's in dollars per barrel um, per month. Per um, month. Okay. So that's a typical storage. What do we? T- what's a typical price on an average market? Uh, to store a barrel. Of it, oil it varies for a quite. Month. It varies quite a quite a bit. I mean, petroleum products are probably slightly less expensive than chemical products in terms of pricing, and so it's just kind well, of like at a dollar amount. If we want, if Tracy suddenly had a barrel of oil, which maybe she would, <laughs> what it cost her to store it for a month in a typical market? Okay, so yeah, I'll I'll say let's start in uh, Houston. You know, gasoline, gasoline components in Houston is around you know ninety to a dollar, ninety cents to a dollar barrel. Diesel's a little bit slightly less than that, 
and essentially you're paying for one month minimum at least. You have to pay for mm. at least one month. That's the minimum a terminal will do. More desirable terminals won't even do that month. They're like, you need to take a year or so. Mm. So so you basically pay for that year whether you use it or you don't use it. And then there's actually secondary markets where people are allowed to sublease their tanks, well, um, like so, in a, you sublet an apartment. So I was going to, this was going to be kind of my next question. Is there, is there an active speculative market for storage capacity? In other words, could I say, you know what? I want to go long the cost of storing uh, oil here, or I just want to buy a bunch of capacity and I don't know if I'm going to use it, but I think I can resell it for more six months from now, or I want to buy a bunch of capacity here and sell a bunch of capacity here because I think it's going to rerun it. Like, how liquid, like, can you just sort of be like a computer <laughs> warrior and trade capacity in some way? Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of a multifaceted question. So, yes, trading companies will take speculative positions and lease tanks, but typically they don't do it so they can sublet it. It's typically they're anticipating some sort of market need and you usually want it for your own use, whether it's blending or storing the oil. And that will actually make you more money than subleasing the tank because it could be, you know, exponential factor how much more money you can make having that tank. And yeah, the, the there is a secondary market. I wouldn't say it's that liquid, but with us being around, it's maybe gotten more liquidity to it. And in terms of future buying of storage, so it's interesting you say that there was there was a company that had futures exchanged for storage on CME and you were able to if you wanted to book June storage for, you know, a certain amount of price and it would be a one month contract. So that, that contract did exist. Hmm. I'm not sure if it's still on CME. I'd have to check. I don't remember offhand because they were kind of a competitor of ours. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that did it. And it was pretty uh, innovative and that did exist. So yes, you could, you kind of do both. <laughs> What should financial services C-suites be thinking about around Gen AI? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Business. So what should C-suites be thinking about? What's the one key takeaway they should be aware of? Explore the potential of this technology, but with right safeguards in place. Clearly, the technology is fascinating. The potential it provides is something that we have not seen this far. So there is merit to exploring it, but at the same time, it is extremely important for organizations that are operating in regulated industries, such as ours, be guarded and have the right safeguards in place to protect themselves from the risk they are exposed to with this technology. Great stuff. Thanks, Vidya. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. How long can oil be stored? Hmm. And the reason I ask is going back to me keeping a jar of oil on my desk and slowly poisoning my colleagues. I really didn't mean to do that, Joe. Thank you. I was thank you, Tracy. Yeah, I was surprised by how quickly it actually evaporated from this jar. And there was other weird stuff that happened, like for instance, the solids start settling at the bottom, right? And yep. so every once in a while, I remember I would pick up this jar and just kind of shake it to get it looking how it looked when I first received it. But there are all these considerations that go into actual physical storage. How long can you actually do this? And again, thinking back to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, I always have this picture in my mind of a mountain of oil barrels like in storage somewhere, but I don't know if that's actually the case. If we have barrels of oil that are just sitting around for decades or something like that. So yeah, I mean, you just mentioned it. Crap can go to the bottom of a tank and that does happen naturally in all tanks. Uh, you know, if you've ever opened one of those large crude oil tanks, you'll see some interesting things at the bottom of it. <laughs> like what? Like rocks and I stuff? I mean, crude has like all types of metals and uh, yeah, not rocks, but yeah, it's just a, it's a sludge. and Solids. Yeah. If, and uh, you can't shake it, presumably, no, to get it no. back. Yeah, they typically clean the bottoms. Every once in a while, terminals will have to clean the bottoms of a tank to, you know, get all that crud out of there. But you can basically park crude oil in for a tank forever. I mean, it's essentially the same as leaving it in the ground. Typically, products, once it's refined, they need to be turned over and eventually consumed. Their shelf life isn't as long as crude oil. Crude oil, you can just really leave there forever. And all terminals have what I would call... So for crude oil, they have floating roofs that sit on top of the crude oil to mm. control the vapor pressure. <clears throat> and then there's the bottoms of the tank. So there's actually like a little hole, a circular hole in a tank. And that's where the pipe is connected to. And actually beneath that hole, there, there's what called the bottoms of the tank or the heels of the tank. And that's where all the crud is. And mm. then on top of that is where the oil is able to pump out of the tank. So when you're leasing a tank, you're actually leasing that full capacity, even though technically that usable capacity is less than what you're paying for. So that's just kind of an industry standard. What happens to the vapor? When you suck a oil out of the tank? Yeah. That's a good question. I don't even know. <laughs> well, okay, we're going to have to do well, was, a whole other episode but, on oil vapors. But I was, I mean, that is sort of what I was wondering next. Has the midstream slash storage industry been forced to do any changes as a result of sort of um, climate and mm. other questions? I mean, obviously you hear about it in natural gas with methane leaks, et cetera, mm -hmm. and as a particularly potent contributor to climate change. Has there been anything in your world that has to be done different business practice wise in terms of like storage or handling or distribution in order to meet uh, environmental guidelines? They're changing those rules every year or so. I mean, there is a regulatory agency that, you know, has standards for these tanks and they, they look to change them based on events or to meet climate goals. And like you mentioned, so, yeah, there, there are standard practices in place and um, you need to take tanks out of service every certain number of years to get it inspected and uh, make sure it's up to code. And yeah, essentially, you know, there, there's 
basically bylines that terminals need to follow to keep safety procedures. And luckily, you know, in the eight years or nine years that I've been doing this, there hasn't been as many or that many um, incidents of uh, terminal leaking or fires or anything like that. So around this time last year, there was a lot of discussion of a diesel shortage mm. in the Northeast. And it was a pretty big deal. I think the White House actually put out a statement on it at one point. How did that come to happen? How bad was it in retrospect? And why does it seem to have gone away? Hmm. Yeah, no, it's funny. You know, everybody lives kind of in the short term. They're like, ah, you know, we're right. running out of diesel. And then, you know, nobody's talking about it today. It was the same thing with IMO 2020. I don't know if you guys remember that. No. Um, but yeah, essentially, you know, that I believe that was around, you know, the war in Russia and Ukraine and the sanctions happened and uh, people were not accepting Russian oil. So that, you know, disrupts global supply chains. And there's like this natural flow of markets efficiency of moving the oil from point A to point B that kind of uh, suffices the global demand for oil. Um, so basically, global demand stayed pretty high and, you know, there wasn't enough supply to reach that with the sanctions. So that's kind of what led to the shortage in that time period. And that can cause spikes when there's no inventory and say there's a, you know, really cold winter and you need heating oil and there's none there that like the price just keeps going up. So it's uh, that can cause severe spikes. But when there's inventory, that kind of flattens out those spikes because it kind of smooths that process. Today, you know, we're we're not really having those issues. Actually, that level was kind of historic lows for low inventory. And today now, you know, we're building inventory in, on the distillate side. And it's uh, kind of more, I would say, a normal market, as you would say. And uh, we don't really have those issues today. And I would say that's mostly because kind of the Russian oil has gotten out <laughs> and demand has, you know, weakened a little bit for our consumption standpoint. And refiners haven't been able to adapt and produce more, you know, heating oil and more diesel. So I think it's like a combination of factors like anything. And that kind of causes an over, a little bit of an oversupply and that kind of fills the tanks. And, you know, and that's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once inventory levels build, that's what traders watch. And as they see inventory levels build, that kind of decreases the price of oil. And that actually encourages more people to park more oil. So it just kind of builds like that. So the Northeast, uh, especially in winter, as you mentioned, uses a lot of oil for heating. Mm -hmm. We produce a lot of oil, not in the Northeast. There's some pipelines, but we can't, because of the Jones Act, we can't. Um, so <laughs> Where's our Jones Act well, plaxon? Yeah, right. The, the, air, the air horn for every yeah. time the Jones Act comes <laughs> up. But um, is there like a perversity or how do you see that play out? It's like, okay, the U.S. has oil. There are tankers. There is domestic need. What is the infrastructure like for getting or not getting oil from, say, Texas to homes in the Northeast that want to heat their homes? I mean, obviously, with the invention of fracking and natural gas, that yeah. has uh, kind of alleviated a lot of the heating oil need. And that's kind of, you know, helped a little bit as well. I would say the majority of the product for us in the Northeast is coming from the Gulf Coast and um, the refinery complexes down there. And that's via pipeline, via, via the colonial pipeline. Yeah. And then, you know, further up north in like the New England area, they're not connected to any pipe. Right. There's no pipeline in like in Vermont. No. So yeah, they, yeah. they'll take uh, diesel supplies from Europe via vessel or they'll barge it up from uh, New York Harbor and put it into terminals in, you know, Boston. Barge. Area. So wait, that means an inland waterway yeah. from New York. So you can ha you can do 
pipeline from Texas to New York. Yes. And then via barge. Yes. So that way you don't have to deal with any Jones. Yeah, you don't have to pay because it's not a part. Okay. okay. Yeah. Barges are so underrated. I always think that whenever they come up. Yeah. No, totally. And also just America's (laughs) blessed inland waterway system is incredibly underrated. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. I was going to say, Jones Act, they still do exist. People still do lease them, and uh, they will still take them. Typically, it goes to Florida. Most mm. of the Jones Acts go from the Gulf Coast to Florida. I mean, you'll see some that go to New England, but um, not as many. So I know it's been a busy few years for the oil and commodities industry in general, but looking back, you know, now versus 2020, what's been the big change in your business? If you could sort of, you know, just encapsulate it for us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy how quickly everything, so much has changed in only three years. I mean, a lot of the oil majors were, you know, crying (laughs) because, you know, oil prices were so depressed and refining margins were terrible. And now oil prices are high and refining margins are great. And a lot of these big companies are reaping in tons of profit. Um, We've seen a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions on the shale production side with a lot of independent shale producers getting gobbled up by these oil majors because shale producers are seeing good evaluations and the majors are looking to grow their drilling production, but without actually having to drill holes in the ground, they can just acquire a company. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. And from refining standpoint, I mean, uh, there's going to be new refineries built across the world and that's going to eat away at, you know, domestic refining capacity. From us on the midstream side, the terminal side, we've seen a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions as well. You know, a few big recent buyouts happened, and uh, that's kind of changed the hands of the names of the tanks. So <laughs> same assets, different names, and that's kind of what we're seeing recently, you know, just in the past few months. And basically what I mentioned earlier was the global demand for renewables. And that's not just talk. It's happening today. And There is definite capital expenditures being put into building plants and building terminal infrastructure to house, you know, these renewable fuels. So it'll be interesting what the next few years hold for that. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's constantly changing and that's kind of what keeps me on my toes and keeps me interested in this oil game. Um, But yeah, it's been different since 2020. Um, A lot of things have changed. All right, Stephen Barsamian, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots and explaining the business of storing and moving oil and its various products to us. Really appreciate it. That was no, fun. Thank you for yeah, having that me. Was great. Joe, that was a uh, fun conversation. I enjoyed that. It brought back a lot of memories for me about that buying oil project. And there was actually a broker who took me out on his boat to go around like Arthur Kill. That sounded really fun. Yeah, and look at all the terminal facilities and the tankers out there and stuff. There were a few things that stuck out for me. So I was kind of surprised that we have actually built out storage infrastructure to the extent that we seem to, because it does seem like in so many other areas, the U.S. sort of struggles with building just in case capacity. Yeah. But for some reason, it seems to have worked out in the oil world. That was really interesting. I was also just like really, I mean, there were a lot of interesting things. I remember when March 
I guess April 2020 is when we had the negative negative oil, oil prices one yeah. day. And I remember thinking like, well, like there must be some market somewhere that is essentially the mirror image to this oil price. But we don't have a chart because there's not like, you know, I don't think like storage capacity data is like as common as the oil price data or is as like readily available. But I remember at the time thinking like there must be some chart somewhere that is literally the mirror image of this because someone with some marginal storage mm. capacity must have seen, you know, the, the amount that they can rent out their space for essentially like shoot up positive 40 or something de facto like that. Because if you have this oil and you're producing so much and you run out of space, like you're desperate, right? Right. So it, that know, was when everyone was joking about buying oil and yeah. storing it in their bathtub. But you and were, stuff ahead, like you that. were ahead of the curve on uh, <laughs> owning oil ahead of that. But yeah, right? Like that would be the ultimate time if you had the capacity. You yeah. just been making a fortune. I did think it was interesting. Steve brought up the sort of creative storage solutions that you did see at the time. Yeah. So, for instance, just keeping your oil on rail cars or just uh, leaving it in pipelines mm -hmm. for storage as opposed to using them to actually move it. I wonder, yeah, crazy times. I'm also like interested, you know, to like how I guess at some point there was like a CME futures yeah. contract for capacity and like intuitively there's got to be like arbitrage opportunities where you're like, oh, I'm long Houston st storage capacity and short Louisiana storage capacity, et cetera. But maybe those markets have yet to be fully like uh, built down liquid. And so do you think Steve will let us advertise uh, storage capacity on his website <laughs> and see if we if get anyone some, interested? Do you have storage capacity in your basement, Tracy? I've got like one foot of desk space for yeah, I, if someone wants to store don't a, do another it. jar of it's oil. It sounds, it sounds like an environmental headache yeah. at the minimum. Yeah, you're right. Okay, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Check out Stephen's podcast, Tank Talk, brought to you by Tank Tiger. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin, Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot, and Kale Brooks at Kale Brooks. Thank you to our producer, Moses Andam. For more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we have transcript, a blog, and a newsletter. And you can chat with fellow listeners of the podcast in the Discord, discord.gg slash Odd Lots 24-7. We have an energy channel and a uh, transportation channel, so maybe people will be talking about it in there. And if you enjoy Odd Lots, if you want us to go on a field trip to uh, Arthur Kill and look at all the oil storage out there, then please leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget, if you're a Bloomberg subscriber, you can connect your account and listen to all of the Odd Lots episodes ad-free. Just connect your Bloomberg subscription to Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. 
for over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.